Hi, and welcome to Harvest Bible Chapel, Kuala Lumpur Online. We hope that the following message will be a blessing to you as you seek to walk with the Lord in spirit and in truth. For more information about our church, please visit www.harvestkl.org or click the link in the description below. Hi, and welcome to Harvest Bible Chapel, Kuala Lumpur Online. We hope that the following message will be a blessing to you as you seek to walk with the Lord in spirit and in truth. For more information about our church, please visit www.harvestkl.org or click the link in the description below. That, folks, is a bumper. That is so awesome. Oh, man. Well, good morning to those of you here in the building in Lancaster, to you in Myerstown. Love you. Miss you. We'll be back with you next week. And to those of you who are worshiping with us online, it is a privilege to greet you this morning. Man, on the drive here today, it just hit me upside the head. Like, I'm preaching the words of Jesus. What a privilege. What an amazing... Like, we are literally reading... The recorded words of our Savior Jesus, the God who came to the earth to be a physical man, spoke words that we are now reading. It just, man, and he's telling us this. Church, be different. Be different. Live different. And so we're continuing on in our series in the Sermon on the Mount called Different. Different. We get this from Jesus' own words in Matthew 6, 8. He says to the, to the people that are listening in response to the Pharisees and scribes, he says, don't be like them. Essentially, he says, be different. Church, we are blessed. 
We are blessed to be different. The state that we are in, in Christ, empowers us, enables us, gives us the things that we need to actually live different. From heaven's perspective, this is radically different. How can we accomplish this? Simply because Jesus said we could. Because Jesus said so. I think that's good enough. What do you think? See, last week we dove into a review on the Beatitudes and learned about a different kind of impact, right? That we are blessed because Jesus has pronounced us so and that you, that me, that we together can be the salt of the earth, the light of the world. Man, the words of Jesus, the red words, some of the most important words we get to navigate together over these few weeks and I am super excited about it. Can you tell? A little bit. Now we're on this idea this week, greatness, a different kind of great. Jesus has blessed us to be great. Jesus has blessed you to be great. You want to be great? Or who doesn't? Show of hands. Who doesn't want to be great? Good. No hands went up. Or how about this? How about, are you just okay with being okay? Right? You're just okay with being okay. Like, meh. but I bet you have passions. I bet you have things that fire you up. I would imagine then that these are some of the things that you desire to be great at. True? Perhaps? You know, I love the banter. I love the posturing up and the the stat flying that ensues when questions like this come up. Who is the greatest quarterback of all time? Pretty simple answer. It's Josh Allen. I mean... Talk about a fluctuating measurement of greatness, seriously. I mean, the greatest power forward, the greatest shortstop, the greatest you fill in the blank, and everyone's got an opinion of what's great when it comes to this question. How about it, Ross? Or the greatest uh, NCAA? No, we're not even going to go there. But this idea of great came up in a rather unique way recently. You see, child number one, my daughter, my oldest, and I were, were driving along, and, and we're playing the old game of... Uh, would you rather? Would you rather? You know how this works. It's a game of questions designed to create tension, right? It may cause even some to pause, evaluate the less of two not so enjoyable options or two equally desirable options. You know, for example, would you rather have a pause button or a rewind button on your life? Careful how you answer that right? Tension. Would you rather lose your taste or smell? You can ask a few of those this season. I think some of you have a personal opinion about that one. Would you rather have a lot of friends or one truly best friend? Lots of would you rather questions. Well, our little game landed on this question. Would you rather be world famous and not so good at anything, or the greatest at one thing, and completely unknown. You see, Jesus, Jesus is kind of playing a divine version of the game here with the Sermon on the Mount. You've heard it said, but I say. You've heard it said, but I say this. 
And various times all throughout these chapters, he will present this comparison, this tension, if you will. And today, Jesus is essentially asking his hearers this question. Listen up. Would you rather be great in the kingdom of men or the kingdom of God? Or would you define greatness by man's standards or God's standards? You see, what I love about Matthew's gospel is that he displays Jesus as a new and greater Moses. And Jesus, in this moment of teaching, stands before them, not with stone tablets with the words of God on them, but he is the very literal word of God in the flesh. And Jesus is not re-delivering an earthly or elitist moral where, here, listen, where you are the centerpiece. No, no, no. Jesus is delivering a divine ethic that are principles for kingdom life designed for those inside the kingdom where, get this, he is the centerpiece. Jesus is the centerpiece of the kingdom of God. Amen? You see, church, the work of salvation, the work of salvation is done in the heart. The work of salvation is done in the heart of the individual, and these are descriptive principles of those who have been renewed. You've been renewed by Jesus? You've been renewed? These are descriptive principles of those who've been reborn, those who've been transformed. And so today Jesus is going to teach us that greatness, greatness by heaven's standards is not defined the same way the world, or in this case, the religious people of the day would define it. As a matter of fact, friends, greatness in the kingdom of God comes from the imputed righteousness of Christ, not the self-imposed righteousness of man. Imputed. All of Christ's righteousness accredited to you. All of it. So let's jump into our text. If you have your Bible, I hope you do. If you do not have a Bible today, there are some in the back. You're going to need it. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. Let me read the passage for us this morning. Jesus says, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called, get this, great in the kingdom of God. For I will tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Lord, I just pray. I pray, God, that you will teach us. Jesus, may your words become life to us this morning. May we grasp what you intended this text to mean. We pray by your Holy Spirit. In your name, amen. What I love about these few verses is that they serve as the proposition or simply the big idea for Jesus' sermon over the next few chapters. You see, Jesus is preaching or teaching this continuous teaching over the next few chapters. And this text, verse 20 specifically, serves as the sermon's proposition. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, there's no entering the kingdom of heaven. And over the next three chapters, Jesus is going to teach us what he spoke about in the Beatitudes, about how to live out our blessedness or how to be salt and how to be light to the world. So church, you want to be great? 
Do you want to be great? Do you want to be great by kingdom standards? Well, let's jump into this text. First thing you need to understand is that you need to embrace the Redeemer. You need to embrace the Redeemer. Jesus says, do not think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I've not come to do that. I've come to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota or dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Jesus jumps right off the page with these words. Do not think. Do not think. We can infer based on this comment that some had had accused Jesus of, of probably breaching the teaching of the Torah, the first few books of the Bible. Perhaps he was displacing the warnings and the truths of the prophets. Or perhaps Jesus was deconstructing the law of God altogether to introduce a, a new kind of heavenly ethic from above. After all, his message was, was pretty radical for the day. Actually, actually, Jesus was revealing the reality of a messianic way of living. One that would not abolish the law and the prophets, but actually bring them to culmination in him. Catch this. What he's saying is they all point to me. All the law, all the prophets are going to culminate in me. I've come to fulfill every stroke of the pen. All of it. You see, the issue here is that Jesus did not walk around like the Pharisees. He didn't walk around and talk like the Pharisees, you know, the religious people of the day. He didn't teach like the scribes, you know, those who taught and were responsible for interpreting God's word. He sounded altogether different. His teachings were so radically different than the prevailing theology of his day. So they, they had to assume things like, like, does he not know Moses? Does he not know the teachings of Moses? Does he not know the teachings of the scribes? Does he not know? Has he not heard the heralding of old from the prophets? The reality is, friends, he does. The reality is, friends, Jesus did not come to subvert the word of God and substitute his own. He came to reveal the good news. He came to reveal the good news of the kingdom. He actually came to overthrow the teachings of men, the moralistic burden of the religious and the self-created morals of the irreligious. You see, Jesus' emphasis, Jesus' emphasis was on the inward, was on the inward, the heart renewal that causes the law of God to be seen for what it truly is, God's holy and perfect standard. Church, what hope do we have if our God and his word is not perfect? What hope do we have if, if the letters of the page could fall to the ground, be false, and not be what they are intended to be, perfect? That's why he goes on in verse 17. He says, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've, I've come to fulfill them. And I want you to note two things here. First of which, I want you to note the, com- the competing thoughts that Jesus is talking about here. He's talking about abolishing and fulfilling. The best interpretation here of abolish is, is to dissolve or, or in a construction term to, to demolish, to bring the building or the structure completely to the ground. Jesus is saying, I've not come to remove it as if it was never there in the first place. I've not come to dissolve the law and the prophets, which would completely unravel the validity, completely unravel the authority and the impeccability of God's word altogether. He's saying, no, 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 no. I've come to fulfill it. I've come to fulfill it. 
This word here means to bring to completion. To bring to completion. As a matter of fact, it's not even adequate to say, enough to say, Jesus was filling in what was lacking as if something was missing because all of God's word is perfect and precise. Rather, Jesus was, Jesus is the culmination of it all. This word is to, it means to, to fill up the perfect word pointing to the perfect one. That's what Jesus is saying here. I've not come to abolish. I've not come to tear down. I've come to show you that it's been pointing to me all along. Which leads to the second observation in the verse that Jesus believed, catch this, Jesus believed that the Old Testament pointed to him and was perfect in every detail. Jesus believed that the Old Testament pointed to him and was perfect in every detail. That's why in verse 18, to drive the point home and emphasize the significant importance of trusting in the word of God, Jesus says, heaven and earth will not pass away. Not a whit of the law will be removed. Until what? Until what? All is accomplished. All is accomplished. Luke records this in Luke 16, 17. Jesus saying that it would be easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of the law to drop out. Made me think about how much we depend on creation. I mean, I can, I can touch this, this podium here. I can get down and touch the ground. I can, I can come out there and hug you. Like you, you're, you're a part of God's creation. And, and we have great dependence upon God's creation, don't we? If I came down off this platform, I am going to depend on that chair to hold me up. But what Jesus is teaching us here is that we should trust God's word even more. Trust God's word even more. That should blow our minds that God's word is more dependable than creation itself. See, Jesus is affirming the reliability and the truthfulness of scripture with the strongest of possible language. Heaven and earth will not pass away until all is done. Why? John 17, 17, because your word is truth. Your word is truth. See, some in our day, and certainly some in this day, have suggested that potentially the Old Testament is so disconnected from the New Testament. As a matter of fact, some in our day would even have said, take your Bible and just rip the Old Testament right off because you don't need it. Jesus' way of grace is far greater, far better than anything the Old Testament has to offer, and so it's, it's of no use. It's, it's invalid is that what Jesus is teaching us here? No. All over the Gospels, Jesus spoke of the Old Testament as historical, as a historical narrative, and never gave the slightest bit of questioning to its historicity or even its accuracy. Jesus taught the disciples, taught these followers, that the Old Testament was accurate and precise. And so we hear, here we have Jesus at the beginning of his ministry drawing attention to these facts by teaching us and teaching them the intention of Scripture. He's teaching them the intention of Scripture. It points to me. The intention of Scripture is that it points to Jesus. And he's teaching them the perspective of Scripture. It's fulfilled in me. All of Scripture is fulfilled in me, and it points to me. We would do well, church, to understand this intention and this perspective of Scripture. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. On the road to Emmaus, and at the appearing to his disciples, did not Jesus teach us this? 
Luke chapter 24, Jesus' words again. He says to them, O foolish ones, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And catch this, verse 27, and beginning with Moses, (laughs) beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. He goes on in Luke 24, verses 44 through 45, he says to them again, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. I pray that the Lord is opening our minds to understand the scriptures right now because these truths are so valuable. John confirms this in John chapter 5, where he records Jesus' words again. You search the scriptures because in them you think you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Church, this is not just an important reality for these early disciples to wrestle with. It's important for us too. You see, Matthew is writing to the church. Matthew is writing this epistle, this gospel. This is essentially, it's an epistle. He's writing back to the church. As a matter of fact, Matthew's epistle, this gospel would come late in the first century. We have a timeline, I think, up there on the screen. It shows us that, there it is, Matthew's writings come much later. The ink of Matthew's gospel was probably some of the last to dry in the first century. And he was wanting the church to be as convinced as he wants us to be convinced that Jesus is who he says he was. And church, we need to wrestle with the same. Some of the most important answers that you can come up with are answers to these questions. Who do you say Jesus is? Who do you say Jesus is? Does that answer change depending on who you're around? Is Jesus the promised one? Is Jesus the perfect one? Is Jesus the one that gave up heaven's riches to come and secure eternal life for you? What authority does Jesus have? What authority does his word have? Is it all? Some? Maybe a jot or an iota? And what does he call me to do? Jesus says, repent, believe, follow me. Church, it's important for us to have answers to these questions. It's important that our living, our ability to live out our salt and light directly lines up with the biblical answers to these questions. Who is Jesus? What authority does he have? And what does he call me to do? I pray that by the end of this series, you have clear answers to those questions, if not already. So by now, you might be asking this question, or at least I hope you're asking this question. What did Jesus have to fulfill? What did Jesus have to fulfill? Well, we can think of or perhaps divide the law of God into into three parts. There's the the moral law of God, you know, is for all people, encompasses all of creation. Think Ten Commandments. There's the judicial law of God. It was for Israel alone. It's the legislative arm that governs them, that sets them apart from every other nation. Remember, Israel was a theocracy. 
And then we have the ceremonial law, which was meant for Israel's worship. It was all about temple ritual and temple worship. So we have the moral law of God, we have the judicial law of God, and we have the, the ceremonial law of God. And so which is it, Jesus? What are you speaking of here? What did you come to fulfill? Church, essentially what Jesus is saying is all of it. All of it. He came to fulfill every bit of it. The principles, the patterns, the prophecies, the types, the symbols, the pictures. Everything in the Old Testament is authored by God, is fulfilled in God, and points to Jesus. That's what he's saying. Friends, your Old Testament should be read in light of all you know about Jesus. Why? Because he's on every page. Jesus is on every page. See, Jesus fulfilled the moral law. He was completely perfect and obedient in every way. Jesus fulfilled the judicial law. He became the judge of a rejecting Israel and actually submitted himself to becoming a victim of the system itself. And he fulfilled the ceremonial law. He became the final and perfect lamb who died on the cross, ending temple rituals and rites. Church, he fulfilled the law morally, ceremonially, and judicially, but he also fulfilled all that the prophets spoke of him as well. Jesus is awesome. He is awesome. He should be awesome to you. Friends, what's the point? What's the point this morning? Greatness begins. Greatness is only possible when you embrace the greatest one. There's no other way. There's no other path to greatness. You want to be great? You have to embrace the greatest one. He became the least so that you and I could become great. You want to be great? It begins with Jesus. He came to fulfill the greatest words ever spoken to reveal to us the greatest of all things, himself. Himself. Jesus has revealed himself, the greatest of all things. Church, greatness begins. Greatness begins by embracing the work of the Redeemer. And point two, greatness begins. Greatness begins when we engage in the expectations of the redeemed. Verse 19, he says, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, verse 19, he starts off the verse with therefore. What's he saying here? If the perfect word of God is fulfilled in me and all that it says will happen, do not annul it, do not set it aside or add to it, thus watering it down. In light of all that it says to do, do it. Do it. As a matter of fact, whoever relaxes and teaches others to relax it will be considered least. Whoever practices and teaches others to practice will be considered great. What does Jesus mean here? He means if the Bible is trustworthy and true, then handle it with care. If the Bible is, is trustworthy and true, then it will impact you. Salt and light, blessed, blessed. If the Bible is trustworthy and true, use it to impact others. Handle it with care. Allow it to impact you and then turn around and live sent. Let it impact others. What was going on that would lead Jesus to talk about the way the word of God is, is taught? Well, simply this. You see, the scribes and the Pharisees had taken the, the internal law of God meant to transform the sinner's heart, and he made it an external thing that forced people into doing things to, to earn their place. And get this, 
the approval that they were seeking wasn't just God's approval, but man's approval. See, the scribes decided on the law and the Pharisees paraded around doing the law and showing off for all the world to see. Look at me. Look how righteous I am. Do you ever find yourself doing this? Do you ever find yourself thinking, perhaps believing that doing more was the way in? Perhaps you've been led to believe that that God would only love you. God would only accept you. God would only, if you can perform, if you could do these things, if you could act this way, if you get your act cleaned up, then God, then God. Or perhaps God's word is, is somewhere next in line after a long list of other sources in your, in your world. But what would Jesus say? What would Jesus say to these thoughts? Jesus would say, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments, John 14. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments, John 14, 15. Jesus would teach us in John 15, 10, that keeping the Father's commandments actually is the evidence of the love of God in a person. So what is Jesus saying here, church? Jesus is saying, listen, listen, it's your heart. It's your heart that I want. And if, it's, if that's the case, it's about a relationship, not a ritual. And it's the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that produces a love for Christ and his word that provides the power to live as salt and light. You want to live as salt and light? Then the power of Jesus needs to be in you. And if you love Jesus, if Jesus is in you, you'll follow my commandments the way they were intended to be followed. Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher, in respect to verse 19, is quoted as saying this, Lord, Lord, make me of this thy kingdom a right and royal subject. And may I both do and teach according to thy word, whether I am little or great on earth, make me great in obedience to thee. This should be the cry of our heart. Lord, make me, make us obedient to thee. Make us obedient to thee. And whether we are little or great, Lord, we are in your presence. We are in your kingdom. Lord, make us great. Allow our hearts from wandering. So the question this morning I have for you, for me, for us, is what what role does Scripture play in your life? What role does Scripture play in your life? Is the Bible authoritative? Is the Bible even relevant? I think Paul had something to say about this in 2 Timothy. He wrote to Timothy in chapter 3, verse 16. He says, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Church, essentially God's word tells us what's right. God's word tells us what's not right. God's word tells us how to get right, and God's word tells us how to stay right, right? Listen, Jesus believed the scriptures were capable of accomplishing these things, and Jesus was teaching these listeners the importance of God's word. And listen, church, Jesus expects that those who are his to live like it. 
He expects us to live like it. He expects us to be different. Jesus' expectation is that we live different. We live different. And we view the Bible the way that he does. And Jesus' expectation is that we, we look to him for true greatness. We allow him to define our idea of greatness. And it's not the spiritual guru of the day or the New York Times bestsellers. It's Jesus who defines these things. Does he define your idea of greatness? You see, Jesus' perspective of greatness is that we would embrace the Redeemer, that we would engage in the expectations of the redeemed, and then point three, that we would exceed the righteousness of the religious. Exceed the righteousness of the religious. This verse 20 rocked my world this week. If you read this text, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Beginning in verse 20, Jesus says, for I tell you, for I tell you, in the original language, what this, what this word actually means is, listen, listen, listen up. I'm getting ready to drop something on you that's going to rock your world. Listen up. As a matter of fact, the word actually means to, to like very gently come, knowing that this is going to be a huge burden that you probably can't bear, but I want you to listen because it's true. For I tell you, he says, listen, I really desire you to know how kingdom citizens behave. I really desire for you to know how kingdom citizens behave. And I desire for you to understand the word of God because what I'm laying before you is heavy. See, the scribes and the Pharisees, they were no doubt admired people. And Jesus' words would hit the ears of these onlookers like a clap of thunder. These words would hit the ears of these people and rock their worlds. They might even <gasps> gasp just a little bit. But with a little homework, you and I would understand why. You see, the scribes were, were highly trained people. The scribes were highly trained people. You see, from, from childhood on into their 40s, they were, they were trained, they were schooled, they were, they were given the ability to understand God's word and God's law. And they were distinct in their apparel and they had titles and they had seats of honor wherever they went. They were esteemed people of the day. And the Pharisees, the Pharisees were, were highly skilled at observing the law that the scribes interpreted and taught. They were highly skilled at observing all that the scribes set forth. Both the scribes and the Pharisees shared a common commitment to study and observe God's law and draw attention to themselves in the process. So what's the big deal, Jesus? Throwing these lovers of the law under the proverbial bus? Is that what you're doing? I mean, how could my righteousness exceed theirs? How is it even possible? And if entrance into the kingdom of heaven is in the balance, I have no hope. I have no hope. Is this what you're saying, Jesus? Are you saying that I have no hope? You see, these professionals, 
These professionals weren't promoting lawlessness by suggesting that we abolish the law. No, no, no. These professionals were guilty of adding to it. They were guilty of adding to it. They were promoting legalism. See, scholars suggest that these scribes and Pharisees had an additional 248 regulations and 365 prohibitions, and they thought that they were making these things to protect the law of God, as if God needed help. And what ended up happening is that these these additions to the law became equal with God's word and sometimes became way more important. You see see the problem here? They were adding things, hoping to make it clearer, hoping to make it more palatable. So what was happening? The scribes thought, the scribes thought they were improving the law of God, thus closing the chasm. But the reality is they were making it wider. They were making it wider. They were adding to the law of God. They weren't making it easier. They were making it more difficult. The Pharisees learned at least they tried to learn that they could actually do these things that were being added to the law. I could do that. I could, I could tie the dill and the mint leaves, and I could I can walk 200 steps, not 201. I am righteous. But what happened? It hid their heart. It hid their heart. These works, these additional works, hid their hearts. Friends, this did not raise the bar on God's law. It actually lowers it. It does not raise the perfect standard on God's law. It actually lowers it. If man can accomplish it through outward acts, it becomes lip service and an external fashion show. Do you get it? If you can do these things that were in addition to God's law, it becomes lip service. It becomes all about the outward. It becomes an external fashion show. Here's the reality, church. The law should push us to Jesus, not ourselves. Their righteousness was skin deep and all about the appeal of the eye. Not a matter of the heart, but a work of the flesh. If they could try, if they could try, trust me, they could try. They could try and accomplish righteousness for themselves. And if they could do this, why would they ever need a Savior? If they could fulfill God's law, they can't. But if they could, if it was was possible... Why would they ever need a Savior? Church, they missed it. They missed it. They missed it. Why? Because they were in control. They were in control. They were trying to be in control of their own form of earthly righteousness, and they missed it. Jesus was standing there right in front of them, and they missed it. What the law should have pushed them to was standing right there in front of them, and they missed it. Or may we not miss it. May we not miss you, Jesus. Friends, man does not need help with externals. We do not need help with externals. Our hearts are idle factories. We are pros at looking the part. You know how this works. You know how this works. I have the filters on my phone, the programs on my laptop. I've read the chapter in that book. I'm ready for that accountability meeting tomorrow. Meanwhile, my heart is feasting on sin. What does Jesus say about your heart? What does Jesus say about your heart 
and his righteousness. Jesus would say this, Matthew 15. It's the spirit of the law, not merely the letter of the law. He says to the Pharisees, you honor me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. May it never be said of us, Lord. He goes on in Matthew 15 to talk about the fact that it's an internal matter, not merely an external one. He talks about what, what defiles a person, not what goes into his mouth, but what comes out. That's what defiles a person. Disciples ultimately are focused on divine character, not divine commands. Jesus was not teaching his disciples to beat the scribes and Pharisees at their own game, but a different concept of righteousness altogether. Listen, church, this is about the moral purity of our heart, not the ritual purity of our hands. Catch this. I want you, I want you to hear this. In Christ, in Christ, you are more righteous than any religious person who've ever lived. Why? Because in Christ, you have all of his righteousness accredited to you. All of Jesus' righteousness accredited to you. You don't need outward acts of righteousness. You don't need to perform for Jesus. You don't need to stand on the stage of your life and hope that God will accept you. He accepts you because of Jesus. It's his righteousness imputed into you on your behalf. On your behalf. So now what? What are we, what are we left with? What are we left with, church? If the word of God is perfect, if the word of God is perfect, if his standards set forth in the word is holy and perfect and Jesus came to prove that and fulfill that and God's demand for righteousness is a matter of a perfect and pure heart, you and I need something or someone greater than ourselves or or in the case of this audience, someone greater than Moses, someone greater than the scribes, someone even greater than the Pharisees. Jesus is saying to, the, to, these, to this audience and he's saying to you and me today, you need me. You need me. You need me. And I have the authority to say so. Church, we need the perfect righteousness of Christ. This is the gospel. This is the gospel. In one verse, Jesus is preaching the gospel. The perfect fulfillment of what was promised was accomplished and accredited to me, to you, so that I, so that you could stand before a holy God and fulfill the greatness in your life and love his ways and love his law. You want to love the law of God? You want to fulfill the law of God the way it was intended? It's through Christ's righteousness that you have hope. Nothing else. perfect standard of the law reveals the need for a perfect heart. God's law reveals the need for a perfect heart. And our only hope of perfection, our only hope of one day reaching perfection is through Jesus. But in the here and now, we are given the righteousness of Christ and we are given the Holy Spirit so we can obey God's law, we can follow it, we can treasure it as it was meant to be. Listen, church, the law reveals your need for a Savior. The law reveals your need for a Savior. We should look at God's law and we should see that we are in need of a Savior. Why? Because it's perfect and we are not. We are not. Paul says this in Romans chapter 5. I love this. This messed me up this week. Paul says, chapter 5, verse 18, he says, Therefore, therefore is one trespass, 
As one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. The one act of righteousness through Jesus Christ has led to eternal life for all of us in the room and beyond. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. It's through the obedience of Jesus that we are made righteous, church. Listen to this, verse 20. The law came in to increase the trespass. You can't use the law to be good enough. You can't use the law to be good enough. Why? Because where sin increased, praise God, grace abounds all the more. Praise God that your grace abounds. Or else, church, we, we have no hope. If his grace does not abound, we have no hope. If the one man's act of righteousness had not happened, we would have no hope. But praise be to God, Jesus, the perfect righteous one, came to be obedient for us, for you, for me. Mm. So that as sin would reign in death, grace might also reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through who? Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Friends, greatness in the kingdom of God comes from the imputed righteousness of Christ, not the self-imposed righteousness of man. It's not your righteousness that earns your spot. It's the righteousness of Jesus. You want to be great? You want to experience greatness as, as, as it was intended to be from heaven's perspective? You want to be great? It's through Jesus. Find greatness in me. You see, friend, if you're in Christ, you're blessed. If you're in Christ, you are blessed because Jesus says you're blessed. You're great because Jesus says you're great. Listen, he says this because you've embraced the Redeemer and you've surrendered to the gospel. That's great. That's great. If you've surrendered to the gospel today and Jesus is your righteousness, that's great. That's great. If you're here today and you've never trusted the gospel, I would imagine you're searching for greatness. You may not know it, but that searching for greatness is probably what compelled you to be here today. And let me tell you something. If you're searching for true greatness, if you're searching for eternal greatness, it's only found in Jesus. Lay down your works. Lay down your efforts. Lay down your attempts and embrace the work of Jesus. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. Amen? If you're here today looking for greatness, it's only found in Jesus. Jesus is telling you, he's telling me, he's telling all of us today, we will only ever find greatness in him. Lord Jesus, we, we admit today, we admit today, if, maybe it's the first time, but we admit today that our works of righteousness are like filthy rags. We admit today that our greatness, trying to, trying to, trying to find it in ourselves, is, is of no effort, it's of no value. It just end, finds us in a never-ending cycle of looking to ourselves, looking to the world, looking to substances, looking to people, looking to anything that we can put our hands on to make ourselves feel better, to make ourselves feel great. But greatness is found in you. And may we never fall victim to the never-ending cycle of, of creating righteousness for ourselves. May we fall upon your grace. May you be our cornerstone. 
May your blood and your righteousness be that which we find greatness in. Lord Jesus, I pray for the heart that is in this room right now that has somehow found a way to feel good through works of righteousness, Lord. Would you, would you break their heart? Would you then fill it with your righteousness? Would you fill it with your love? Would you fill it with your comfort? Would you fill it with peace? God, your word is perfect. And it is possible to to find true righteousness in your word, but there was only ever one who was actually able to do it. It's Jesus. And so we fall upon you, Jesus, as the only righteous one who is able to fulfill the righteous demands of a holy God. It is you we worship. It is you we come into this place to serve. It is you that we come into this place to sing to. So Lord Jesus, would you do the work in the heart of the sinner today? Would you change it? Would you renew it? And would you set them apart? Would you allow them to live different? They're here searching for it. Lord, would you grant it to them? for those of us who have trusted you, would you afresh give us eyes to see the beauty of your righteousness now as we sing these precious words back to you. We pray in Jesus' name.